That one does look sad. Yeah. But that one's not like chill naked lounging. That's like, like dead. <laughs> it's dead naked lounging. I mean, lounging. I guess he is pretty chilled out if he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> he's got no more worries. Yeah, he is the most chill he will ever be. Dead needs no worries. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Apoptosis is going mad, my liver's gonna fail. Maybe it's from the radium I use to paint my nails. Well, say you hate me, carbon date me, throw me in the sea. I'll be back with time because I'm made of stardust and chemistry. A stardust and chemistry. Hello and welcome to Cowboy Chemistry, where we talk about the wilder days of chemistry. My name is uh, Dylan E. Tharp E. Rally. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm a PhD candidate in chemistry at Texas Tech University. Uh, today, my guest is Ralia, a local comedian and future veterinarian. Hopefully, maybe in like 10 years, but I love being a vet tech, so I'm getting my uh, certification as a technician first. Nice. Yeah. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um, I did start off the morning a little bit. I don't know, feeling like an airhead, but I kind of kind of took some, you know, <laughs> some rest, some sleep, and then coffee, and felt a lot better. Good. This is your day off. It yeah. is. Good. It is. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I know you work like everyone who works in the vet industry works like eighty-hour weeks, and it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is so crazy. And I, when I was first in the vet field, I was like, yeah, I can do this. Like, no sleep, four hours of sleep, and continue to go. Like seven days a week, but now I'm like, uh, it's, I have other parts of my life I kind of want to focus on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but yeah, do you know who we're talking about today? I don't. I know you've told me the name, but I do not know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> so her name is uh, Marie Anne Perriette Palzi Lavoisier. I hope I pronounced all of that correctly. Um, <laughs> she's a French chemist and noblewoman. Um, Madame Lavoisier was the wife to the chemist and nobleman Antoine Lavoisier. Um, Antoine Lavoisier is often called the father of modern chemistry. Um, okay. So he's, um, yeah, he he comes up with a lot of like, like a lot of how we name chemicals kind of started with him. Okay. Um, him and like three other people kind of discovered oxygen at the same time. And then that's actually part of this story is uh, the discovery of oxygen. Um, but yeah, but really we're going to talk about his his um, wife, Marianne, and her role as the mother of modern chemistry. Because Antoine Lavoisier, I mean, he did do a lot, but everything he did, he did with his wife. So um, yeah, we're going to talk about it, her. Kind of like that little partnership of them doing things together. Yeah, absolutely. Because like, so really... Antoine Lavoisier, um, you know, he started being a chemist and then, well, I'll tell the whole story. We'll get, okay. <laughs> I won't get ahead of myself, but uh, yeah, they definitely worked as a partnership. So Marie-Anne uh, Paul Zay was born on January 20th in 1758 in Montbrisson-Lior, France. Um, her father was Jacques uh, 
or um, his father, her father was, how do I say this name? J-A-C-Q-E-S. <laughs> uh, Jacques. Jacques, thank you. I <laughs> you know that one. I do know Believe it. In yourself. My brain, my brain would not tell me how to say it. I'm like, come on, it's the French, it's the French Jack. It's just Jacques. <laughs> her father was Jacques Pauzier. Um and then her mother was Claudine, um, Claudine Plaze. Palze. Um, and her mother actually died in 1761 when um, Marie Anne was just three years old. Um, and he she also had two older brothers. So her after her mother's death, Marie Anne um, went to a convent where where she got her formal education. So from three to like twelve, she was being educated in a convent. And my understanding is that's fairly common, especially if you don't have a mother in the home. Uh, a lot of the girl children end up going to convents. I don't know why, but yeah. And so her father was a lawyer and a financier. He ran something called the the farm the general farm. Is what it is in English. And have you ever heard of the general farm? I was about to ask, what is like, what is considered a general farm? Or like, so it has is... nothing to do with farming. Okay. <laughs> so my brain's like, oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. So the general farm, I had to, I had to research all of this too, because this is actually like foundational to the whole story. Um, the general farm is basically a private business that was contracted with the French monarchy. So, um, and they collected taxes and provided certain services on behalf of the monarchy for a fee. Huh. Okay. Yeah. It's not, like, I would have not guessed that at all. Right, yeah. But I guess there's a whole thing called tax farming. It's like a whole, like, system. Like, Romans used it. Like, there's been a bunch of empires throughout throughout the years. Um, England, feudal England had it, too, where... Um, basically there's just people and their job is to go around and collect the taxes, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's basically, you know, it it was somebody's job. And then usually there comes with that, like abuses of the power, right? Because I see that. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're very unpopular people. It's not a, it's not a popular job to have. (laughs) Like, like if you are a tax collector, like you're one of the most hated people, but also you tend to be very, very rich. Um, but yeah, so the general farm, had a renewable six-year contract with the king and so in the 17th and 18th centuries the farmers general so the the tax collectors are called farmers general um become immensely rich and um they also become like patrons of cultural things so music major collections of paintings and sculptures any consumption of like luxury art and like luxury fashion most of that is you know the aristocracy and then the farmers general kind of reminds me of like Funko Pops today like where people just collect a bunch of Funko Pops and it's supposed to be like <laughs> shows like they have like I don't know this money or whatever to like put aside to Funko Pops I don't know that's what I thought of in my head fair I, I didn't know Funko Pops were like a a thing of wealth but I mean some people like they will like have whole walls and rooms that are just dedicated to having collecting Funko Pops fair yeah, and they have to get, like, the most rare ones. And they don't, like, play with them. They just keep them in the box. Mm-hmm. That's what, like, that's what I don't, I don't like that whenever people, like, have really expensive toys that are limited edition, and then they just, like, keep it in a box so that one day they can sell it again. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, just play with it. That's what it's for. <laughs> yeah, Touch but it. also, I'm pretty sure Funko Pops don't lose value when you take them out of the box because the boxes are never sealed. 
Oh, then what's the point of not? I didn't know that. That seems Whoa. silly. Yeah, because there's then there's no way to tell if you've opened the box. Yeah. Right? If it's not sealed, there's no way to tell if you've opened the box. I mean, unless you damage the box. But right. like, huh. if you gently open the box, it'd be uh-huh. fine. I Weird. did not know that. Yeah, I just know people like buy Funko Pops like crazy and then they'll mm-hmm. be like resell Funko Pops for like a high price. Especially if they're like, I know like Gabriel Iglesias had like a Funko Pop and I really regret not buying it because at the time <laughs> that like I came across it, it was only like $40 and now it's like $300 if I were to buy it like online. I'm sorry, like, Funko Pops are going for $300? Some of these Funko Pops can go for like upwards of $1,000 depending on what it is. Because they didn't, they only made so many of them. It's that whole, um, just because it's rare, people want it, you know? Yeah. Fair. But it seems pretty silly. I was going to say, I have some Funko Pops. I don't know if they're rare or not. <laughs> you, <laughs> should, you should check to see what the resale value is. You could make some extra money. But I Never like them. Yeah, <laughs> I have them because I like the characters. <laughs> uh, yeah, my grandma bought them for me. I like them. I want them. <laughs> well, good. Good. They're mine. They're just mine. If you're, a, if you're ever in a desperate situation, that just might be an extra source of income. That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. Um, but yeah, to me, the general, the farmer's general kind of remind me of like robber barons. Okay. Like this generation. You know what robber barons are? Uh, not really. Like, okay. Ex- explain it to me just so. So like in America, we had um, a whole like generation of... Um, business people like henry ford yeah um you know uh whoever whoever was in charge of general oil i don't remember who that was but like there was there was a few companies that had basically entire controls of their markets like standard oil is one of those companies and so the owner of standard oil who i forget his i think it's carnegie is it carnegie i don't know but basically the people who owned those companies were they were millionaires, but, you know, if you count for inflation, they're basically billionaires, right? Yeah. And they yeah. had just obscene amounts of wealth. Like, you know, I mean, even, like, the amount that billionaires have today is nothing compared to how much that money was worth back then. Rockefeller. Rockefeller. Because didn't they say he used to light his cigars with $100 bills? What? That sounds about right. Like, like literally, yeah. they, they were just literally burn money. wealthy. <laughs> and they had entire controls of their market. Nobody could compete with them. There was no such thing as free market. Yeah, and so that... This kind of reminds me of that, right? They have this renewable contract with the king. They're collecting taxes. They also were in charge of things like tobacco. So only they got to sell tobacco. Wow. So that's why that's what it reminds me of as far as this system goes. Um, yeah. This is her father. Her father, yeah. Okay. Her father is a farmer so general. she's a Nepo baby. Yes. <laughs> Great. Yeah. And honestly, so we'll get into this too. It's actually not exactly great to be a nepo baby like she does get money but like yeah because we're gonna get into that right now so like the sons and grandsons of these people would often purchase their way into nobility they would just buy buy a nobility title the daughters would often get married into nobility but like lesser nobles who like don't really have any money right and that way they're with their dowry and stuff they would get to um they would save themselves from ruin right but yeah and then this was like so popular in France at the time. They literally called it to regild one's coat of arms, like so. Like multiple people were doing this. Yeah. Hmm. Um. But yeah. So what? So did they? <clears throat> excuse me. Um. Did they sell? Basically, that's what you're doing with your daughters when you give them and and a dowry to mm-hmm. like a man or whatever. Did they sell their daughters to lesser nobles so that those nobles couldn't advance? Like. So that, so that, 
I'm trying to make this make sense, but mm-hmm. my brain is a little mashed potatoes right now. Did they do that so that like those nobles couldn't get more money? Like to kind of keep them away from the family, the fortune of the family name? I don't think so. No. I think it was just like you know, the, the fact that they had a title uh-huh. was worth something. And so like if you were someone who had a lot of money um, and they were a person with a title, right? Because you're buying your title. Mm-hmm. And so in, in their mind, they're 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 marrying their children into nobility. And so you, the easiest way to get a woman into nobility is to marry her into nobility. Right. The easiest way to get a man into nobility is to buy you it. Just buy it. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So I think it's just literally they're choose, they're trying to get their children titles. Yeah. Okay. Um, because that brings with it privileges. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so that's what I think the idea is here. I don't think it has anything to do exactly with the nobleman involved, other mm-hmm. than the if you're a poor nobleman, you're much more likely to want to marry right. one of these daughters because then you're getting her dowry. Right. Ah. So I think it's just like, that's why they want it. And then the, the the family wants it. The family wants it because they want the title. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. That That's what I understood. But yeah. So at the age of 13, Marianne was a hot pack, a hot package, I guess, because she got a proposal from a 50 year old Count de Am- Amerval. Jacques, her dad, um, tried to object to the reunion or to their union, but um, basically, this guy was like kind of his boss, or like was friends with his boss. I'm not exactly sure how how he had this control over it, but basically, he couldn't really object to it because he could lose his job as a farmer general, and you don't want to do that because that's really nice, right? But yeah, in a letter, uh, his daughter. Um, was decidedly averse to Diamreval. Described him as insane, moreover, rustic and hard, a kind of ogre. Oh, my God. So, which, yeah, I mean, also a 50-year-old man marrying a 13-year-old girl. Disgusting. Because um, I'm sure she understood that she'd probably have to marry an older man, but not an old man. Yeah. Right? Oh, <laughs> like, my gosh. Can you imagine being 13 and here's this old man? <laughs> Oof. Uh, but, yeah, so to, like, indirectly thwart this marriage, what Jacques did is he... Um, found one of his colleagues to ask for his daughter's hand instead. And that was Antoine Lavoisier. Um, and he was a nobleman and a scientist already of his own right. Um, he was 28. <laughs> so still creepily large age gap. Yeah. Yeah. So they got married uh, in on December 16th of 1771. Um, Marie's dowry was 80,000 livres. Um, which was the currency at the time, $3.2 million today. That was what her dowry was. Wow. The groom bought so much, um, also brought wealth into the marriage because his family was involved with the general farm as well. Um, He worked for the general farm. Yeah, and so their annual income was about 20,000 livres, which is $800,000 today. That yearly. Wow. Okay, nice. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So they... They were living cushy, luxurious lives. Um, <laughs> and so Antoine Lavoisier continued to work for the General Farm. Um, and in 1775, he was appointed the gunpowder administrator, which led the couple to settle down in um, the arsenal in Paris. So they moved to Paris. Here is where Lavoisier really started uh, getting some interest in her husband's in, in her husband's work. And... Um, there was a lot of financial stability because of all this money they just got. <laughs> yeah. um, and so Antoine actually builds a state-of-the-art chemistry lab, like, in their house. So nice. they were working wow. out of their house, which was actually was really common for a lot of scientists at the time. They just had, like, a backyard 
in their house. So they had the set ultimate up. like work at home opportunity before yes. like COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So and then like I said, like the Farmers General had a monopoly on tobacco in France as well. Um and that that brought in $30 million a year in revenue. Um, and so for a while, Antoine was in charge of that as well. Um, and he actually figured out a way to tell if there was, um, if it was adulterated. So, you know, somebody added stuff to it. I guess a lot of the times people would add ash. Um, and ash is basic. And so if you add a little bit of acid, it like sizzles when you add acid. Hmm, okay. And so he's like, if you do that, you can tell if it's adulterated. And so basically it was like counterfeit detecting for tobacco. Um, and so he shut down like a lot of black market operations and that made him very unpopular. <laughs> <laughs> but it made him a lot of money. <laughs> he was basically like too bad to everybody else because he was getting money from all of that. <laughs> yeah, though, I mean... So it sounds like he was a pretty nice guy. We'll get into more of the other stuff that he did. Like, uh, I think this was just like a nerdy invention he came up with. And he was like, look at this. This is great. We should, <laughs> we should do this. You know? And then, I don't know. Like, he just, he strikes me as the kind of guy who's like, like, he get, uh, at one point there was a famine and he gave a bunch of money um, with no, like, he expected to be paid back, but he didn't uh, charge interest on the money so that uh, okay. this area could, like, buy food for the famine. Um, and I just think that like, like he's a good, good enough person that he would loan them the money. Yeah. But, but he, he wouldn't wants just it. give them the money. Yeah. He expects uh, it back. But at the same time, at least you said like there was no interest or anything. So it's just literally what I gave, make sure you give it back when you have the chance. Exactly. And I, you know, so yeah, he wasn't like a bad person, but I don't think he was like particularly like altruistic is that the word altruistic you know what i'm saying so uh what is yeah. altruistic like what is that the definition for um means like giving without expecting things in return uh okay yeah right is that a good definition yeah basically it's like are you doing something good for somebody else because you want to do something good or is it because you expect something yeah yeah uh, and there's people out there that don't believe that like literally don't believe in altruism because they believe that everyone does things to expect something back because those people are not altruistic. Yeah. I was like, if you <laughs> don't believe in altruism, the then you are not altruistic. It's because you're a bad person and you see yourself in everyone else. Mm-hmm. Fair. Like, <laughs> I mean, because I tend to think that, too. I'm like, well, I would do this. So why wouldn't you do this? But it's because I'm bad. Sometimes I make bad decisions, right? Fair. <laughs> Yeah. Where was I about that? Yeah. Altruism. Altruism. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, he's like a little altruistic, but like not, he's not Mr. Beast level, I don't think, even, you know? Um, but he tried to like make good decisions with his power. So, you know, he he doesn't just belong on behind the bastards, I don't think. I don't know. Maybe there's some, something I don't know. I don't <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah. So anyway, uh, Marie Anne, you know, becomes interested in her husband's research, um, scientific research, and begins um, participating in in that work. And, and she gets formal training from Jean Baptiste Michael Bouquet. I feel like I That's said that name. very well. <laughs> and then Philippe Gingembre. Let's, let's turn the computer. Let me take a look. <laughs> Bouquet, I guess, and Philippe. Uh, Jean Jambre? 
I think it, I mean because I think that's how you say the G's. I don't think they have the G sound. Jean Jambre. Unless it's Jean Gambre. But you'd have to look it up because it's a name. I don't know. <laughs> Fair. I, I'm only going to mention them once and then we're going to move on. We'll so. call him okay. Felipe that's Lady Gaga is what we'll call him. <laughs> Felipe. Um... <laughs> But yeah, so they were both Lavoisier's colleagues and um, really their their home was filled with with scientists like all the time. Like um, Marie Anne hosted these salons where all the like scientists would get together and talk about stuff. Every Saturday they would be up in their lab um, together doing experiments. So um, and then like people would come observe their experiments. And so they'd have like 30 people watching them do stuff sometimes like nice. up to like 30 people watching them do experiments <laughs> but yeah and then she also assisted in translating documents so she spoke both english and french and antoine lavoisier only spoke french and so um she would translate things written from england because there was um uh priestly and who was the other one they come up later in the script, but there was a couple of people in England that was doing very similar work to Antoine Lavoisier, and so she would translate their papers so that he would know what was going on over there. Nice. The benefits of being bilingual. Yes. I wish I can be there one day. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Uh, I can like kind of read, I can I can read German a little bit. Uh, I can't really speak German, but I can read German. And um, yeah, because I've, I've cited some papers in the original German, and my my professor's like, you read German, right? Like, you are proficient in German? And I'm like, eh. <laughs> She's like, you should really find a translation then. And I'm like, okay, okay. Fa- fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> I was mostly looking at the pictures for the reaction mechanism, but I understand. Uh, I probably should also be able to read it. <laughs> yeah, that's me anytime, like, if for some reason on the floor we don't have a Spanish-speaking, like, nurse or aide. Yeah. The... The charge nurse will always look at me like, you speak Spanish, right? I'm like, same. Incorrect. I understand <laughs> Spanish. Same. I do not speak, especially medical terms. I don't know how to say wound. Oh, I don't know. You know right there where it because you? Like, that's what <laughs> I would say. Yeah. <laughs> Just, like, start pointing, like, here? Like, I think. Es una aoi? I was going to say, I'd be pointing, like, ouch. 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 Right, a key means here, right? Yeah, yeah. So out here. <laughs> oh, if I get the same, uh, like at um, the clinic that I work at, I will always be like, "Uh, is so and so here?" And honestly, one of our translator, she is like white, white, <laughs> but she minored in Spanish, and I go to her to be like, "Okay, how do you say this word?" And then like we'll be there together. We one time somebody called over the phone and. Uh, I understood part of it, but I couldn't understand another part of it. So I grabbed her. And so she took over the phone call and then she would repeat the word out. And then I would like kind of like do a quick Google search (laughs) for Google Translate. And we worked on that phone call together. But yeah, that's how. That's good, though, because that's how you learn. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I'm I'm trying. I'm really trying to be like when they like come to me and be like, do you speak Spanish? I'm like, I will try. And then I go and I try to do it. A language I thought about learning was Farsi. We have a lot of people from Iran where I work, and they all speak Farsi. I could learn Farsi. It's a nice language. It's really cool. It's really beautiful. Um, there's a dude who is dating one of the Iranian students, and he's been learning Farsi. And I'm like, we could all learn Farsi. So let's take the class together, <laughs> <Do> though. <it. laughs> Duolingo, two of us together. <laughs> 
do one of those friend challenges on Duolingo. That's what they I'm doing right now. Yeah, they have friend challenges. Mm-hmm. I do have a I do have a Duolingo story that I guess I can bring up. Uh, I don't think we're rambling too much. I think it's fine. Um, <laughs> I can also cut this we out. Are. So Kelsey has Duolingo and she was learning German and she was learning Spanish. So I was kind of gently poking fun at her for learning, like using it to learn Spanish because I'm like, you could just talk to your grandmother in Spanish because she speaks Spanish. It's Puerto Rican Spanish, so it's a little different, but it's still Spanish. Um, Apparently and they she speak was very fast. Yeah. And they also speak like they're holding water in their mouth. Okay. It's it's kind of strange. If you listen to it a lot, you like can tell the difference between like the way a Mexican speaks Spanish versus a Puerto mm-hmm. Rican. Um, versus like, I mean, Cubans and Colombians are all different dialects. She was filling out this sentence or trying to translate the sentence that had the word menudo in it and also had the word chicken in it. And I was like, no. No one in the history of Mexicanism or the Spanish language has made menudo with chicken. Turns out menudo also means often. Nobody has used it in that. Nobody uses it in that context. If you say the word menudo and you do not have a soup for me, I'm going to give you a payasa. Okay, I'm going to slap you basically. Okay. So I made fun of menudo means soup. Menudo means like the soup, but I guess it also means often. Okay, but if someone says is offering me menudo. They're not offering you often. Yes. Yeah. It's like it's like a soup. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's a soup with intestines, basically. Oh. Yes. Um, Stomach. I don't know if you. I would probably (laughs) decline that. It's pretty good. Um, I'm not gonna lie. It's pretty good. It is kind of gross as an idea, but it's good because it's spicy and you can put lemon in it. It's delicious. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, But ever since then, every time my mom like talks to Kelsey, she's like, "Hey, Kelsey, we're gonna get dinner al menudo." She just makes fun of her because of it. (laughs) And that's how we show love in my family. I finally understand your menudo joke. Which one? The one where you're talking about cleaning it oh, and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now yeah, yeah. I finally it's understand. Yeah. Yeah. Now I finally understand. It's a lot I, like, of, I don't know what menudo is. <laughs> yeah, that's a joke for the... But to be for, fair, I was yeah. like, this joke isn't for me. I'll just... <laughs> <laughs> it, I've seen people die laughing when you tell it. So I'm like, it's just a reference I don't get. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> In general, that's what a lot of my jokes are. Where I'm like, this joke is going to reach maybe 30% of the room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I'm going to need that 30% of the room to carry the rest of it. <laughs> but yeah, especially the, I'm like, I got the queer jokes. So those are the ones for me. <laughs> but yeah, back to uh, Marie Anne. So, um, so when she was 17, those salons I was talking about, they would host those every Monday night um, at their home, which is called the Paris Arsenal. So if I say the Paris or the, the Paris Arsenal, Paris. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Getting those accents in there. Yes. <laughs> Croissant. <laughs> just, you just got to hit him with one of those. <laughs> okay. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't pronounce the S. You would say Paris. Paris. Okay. Then in, uh, in French, if there's a word that has eight letters, you pronounce three and a half of those letters. I, was gonna say, okay. I know there is a ton of silent letters. I just don't know yeah. how to tell which one would be silent. Because um, sometimes it's, it's the vowel, difficult. sometimes it's a, a consonant. I don't know. Yeah. Um, just only say like the first half to a third of the word and you are speaking French properly. <laughs> cool. Cool. And run all the words together. Just one whole thing. Not even don't put any space. Don't take a breath. Do all of it in one thing. Wow, right, right now that sounds harder than Spanish. <laughs> it is. It's very difficult. <laughs> yeah, and so when Antoine uh, took up the post as the, he was the gunpowder and saltpeter administration, he was the head of it, the commissioner 
uh, when he took over the newly established agency in 1775, um, France was producing less than half of its annual requirements of gunpowder. Um, Antoine actually reformed the whole thing, brought rapid improvement. And so by 1776, when the Ameri- in America we were having our revolution, you know, we got all our gunpowder from France. You could thank Antoine Lavoisier for that. Literally, he's the one who was like, we need to get more gunpowder. And then uh, he was good buddies with Ben Franklin. And so that's how we got all our gunpowder for the American Revolution. I, the only reason I remember this is because of Hamilton. And I've been listening to Hamilton like all week for some reason. It's just been in my playlist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, the Lavoisiers were very good friends with Ben Franklin because Ben Franklin was a scientist too. I feel like Ben Franklin had a lot of hats, but he was also a scientist. <laughs> yeah, and also he loved France. Uh, I think he died in France. Did he die in France? You can Google that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I was just pulling something out my butt, but I'm pretty sure he died in France. Like, he loved France. <laughs> but yeah, so as the quantity uh, of the gunpowder increased, the prices dropped, the quality of the gunpowder improved. And so Antoine wrote with pride in uh, April of 1789, one can truly say that North America owes its independence to French gunpowder. He died in 1790 at age 84 in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Okay. 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 That's fair. But maybe he was eating French fries when he died. I'm just kidding. Okay. Sorry. In remembrance. <laughs> maybe he was eating un croissant. <laughs> um, but yeah, so... Throughout all of this, uh, Marie and Antoine were working together to carry out his scientific work. Um, and at times, this proved life-threatening. So they, they were, like, always together. They were that couple that was, like, always together is what I've gathered from this. But, yeah, in October of 1788, they were both um, at a mill observing the grinding of a new type of gunpowder, which I don't know why you grind gunpowder. That seems like a bad idea. <laughs> but, yeah, the mill exploded. Uh <laughs> Killing one of the organization's directors and a young woman standing nearby. Um, Lavoisier, both of the Lavoisiers were standing like behind a barrier at the time, and so they were fine. But like they were like right next to a building that exploded. Wow. Because they worked in the gunpowder industry. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But yeah, they weren't even injured. Like they were like totally fine. But exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like picturing that in my head like them hiding behind like to and then just the building exploding i don't know Mm -hmm. that's crazy yeah um it would give me ptsd i mean like can you imagine uh yeah so here they like their their remaining years together they lived in paris um and they were experimenting and entertaining their guests Marie has been described as an enthusiastic conversationalist and correspondent, as well as a competent editor. Um, And so a lot of, like, the communication about what Antoine Lavoisier did was written by Marie Anne. So, like, anything he did, she wrote it down, and then she helped disseminate that information. Nice. And, like, she would actually, like, help. And she was helping him do his experiments, too. A lot of times, like, like, there's plenty of experiments where you have to just, like, sit there and watch a thing and then, like, write something down. Every few minutes, she did that part of it, you know? The observations part. Like, observation, yeah. And I'm sure she, like, discussed all of this with her husband, and, like, the ideas came from both of them, right? Like, but she's off... I find... They always say that she was, like, an assistant to Antoine Lavoisier. And I don't want to, like, diminish that Antoine Lavoisier was a smart guy, but, like, 
I don't know. Like, but we was she really like, an assistant? <laughs> yeah, we could just like also like recognize that. Sorry, um, we can recognize that she had a part in it. We can recognize that like you know, mm-hmm. I try to say like we shouldn't put her down. We should also like raise her up, like in as far as the two of them, and re- recognize that he probably wouldn't be where he is today without her. Especially with yes. you talking about that she would translate everything. Um, she was part of the experience, part of the observation. So. Her just being, like, labeled as an assistant, I feel like, is not as justifying. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it kind of diminishes her role because it sounds more like they worked as a team, like, mm-hmm. a yeah. team of equals to get this work done. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, yeah, so that's why I just, like, you know, you hear about the father of modern chemistry. Well, why not the father and mother of modern chemistry? Yeah. She was there the whole time. <laughs> the parents of modern chemistry. The parents of modern chemistry. Make it gender neutral, inclusive, gay. <laughs> okay, but take a heterosexual couple and make them gay, though. That's our that that's our motto here. Um, message approved. <laughs> yeah, like I said, Ben Franklin came to a lot of his parties. Was what I wrote down next about. <laughs> this um so the attic is where the laboratory was uh that that uh, antoine and marianne um, would receive scientists from all over the world to to watch their experiments um saturdays were devoted to science and so marianne described this as the day of happiness like this was like her favorite day of the week was saturdays when she got to go do science that's the cutest thing i've ever heard in my life yeah (laughs) right the day of happiness and she's, she's talked about how a few young people were always proud to be granted the honor of having um, cooperated on his experiment experiments. Um, they would gather in the morning in the laboratory, she wrote. It was there that we took lunch, we discussed, and we worked. So, like, literally, it was, like, all worked as a team. Yeah, and so, and the people that she translated from England, their names were Joseph Priestley and Henry Cavendish. So she would translate their work into French. She would all, and... Um, also, Marie-Anne got artistic training from the painter Jacques-Louis David. The David. Y'all don't know that painter? He's like a I big don't. famous painter. <laughs> He's the David. I, I don't know who the David is. <sighs> Hold on. I was going to okay. say, you're going to okay. have to show us, show us an example because I have no idea who that is either. Yeah. I really love like how she's helped so many people. Like Not only like um, her husband, but like also like people that have come to her. Like She's done translations for them. She just sounds like she really likes her life. All right, this one. This painting of Napoleon. Oh, I mean, yeah, I've seen this painting. I don't Um, know that what is his name, but to be fair, I'm also not an art historian. Yeah. I know, like, three artists, and one of them is... This one. I've seen this one. I don't know that I've seen that one. I haven't seen that one. I like it, though. I like like any painting where most of the uh, figures are naked and just, like, lounging. Because it seems like a great time. <laughs> I don't know. This one doesn't seem like a great time. This one looks sad. That one does look sad. Yeah. But that one's not like chill naked lounging. That's like, like dead. Dying. <laughs> <laughs> it's dead naked lounging. I mean, lounging. I guess he is pretty chilled out if he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> he's he, got no more worries. Yeah, he is the most chill he will ever be. Dead. It means no worries. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> It's our problem free <laughs> philosophy. <laughs> We're all dead. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to go to the Madonna part. Um, 
But yeah, I, w- I was like, oh my God, she got training from the painter David, but I guess nobody else knows who the painter David is, um, Jacques-Louis David. But yeah, so that was in 1785 or early 1786. Not long after, but probably sometime in 1787, David actually painted a full-length portrait of both Marie Anne and her husband. So like they were all like really good, nice. really good um, friends. And that painting is going to be the thumbnail for this video. So if you're... When you listen to the video, look at the thumbnail and you'll see the p- portrait of Marie Anne and her husband. Nice. Yeah. And so that training is what allowed her to document and illustrate her husband's experiments, right? So that she drew all the apparatuses and stuff for the publications. And that's because she wow. had art. She went and got artistic training from like a really big painter of the time. She had a lot of skills. Like, yeah. And like, I don't, stop calling her an assistant. If I read one more article that called her an assistant, I'm going to be mad. Yeah. <laughs> I like that that's your threat. I'm going to be mad about it. <laughs> well, I can't delete the article. <laughs> what am I going to do? Hack the website? You should. That's, <laughs> I learned how to hack uh, websites on the internet so that I could delete articles that made me upset. Honestly, be, that's honestly, chaotic. Good right there. That is chaotic. Yeah. Good. That's, that's anonymous right there. <laughs> um, she also painted a portrait of Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin okay. Franklin keeps coming up. I, I don't, they must have been good buddies. He's a family um, friend. <laughs> yeah, he's a family friend. In March of 1785, the Lavoisiers um, were finishing a series of experiments on the decomposition and recomposition of water. Experiments that Antoine um, viewed as some of the most crucial in bringing down the phlogiston theory. Phlogiston. I think that's how you say it. Do you, have you all ever heard of phlogiston? No. <laughs> so it's not real. Let me preface that right now. It is okay. not real. It is utter nonsense that that before we had chemistry, a lot of people thought phlogiston was a thing. So basically the theory is that there is an existence of an element, and I put that in like loose quotes, not like fire-like element. Like when we're talking like with four elements, elements, uh, right? Like a not like hydrogen element. Does that make sense? Yes. I think I might have heard this, but, um, cause it wasn't like, um, like, like alchemist, right? Like that's something totally different. No, this is like an alchemical theory. Yes. 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 Um, but yeah. And so phlogiston was basically a material that existed within things that could catch on fire or rust. Okay. So, um, and phlogiston was released theoretically when you burned something right okay that that's the theory so yeah and now now what we know that this is called oxidation so if you know about chemistry stuff we're talking about oxidation but they're trying to disprove that phlogiston exists because would uh phlogiston basically be that the idea that anything is combustible so it's not anything is combustible it's things that are combustible have phlogiston in them okay so wood has phlogiston in it for example, you know, th- things that can burn have phlogiston, is the thought. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and then, so when you burn something, if you burn something in an enclosed space, right, eventually the fire will go out, right? Like if you smother a fire, right, you oh, yes, put a cap, yes, you yeah. know, it'll it'll put itself out because it, what it really happens is it burns through all its oxygen, right? That okay. That's what really happens in real life. You're, you're depriving the fire of oxygen the fire cannot continue right right um the theory at the time was that 
the air had become completely flogiscated, flogiscated, <laughs> that it would no longer serve to support the combustion of any material, nor could flogislated air support life. Breathing was thought to take thought to take phlogiston out of the body. The result of air left after burning, in fact, which was a mixture of nitrogen and carbon dioxide, was sometimes referred to as phlogislated air, having taken up all the phlogiston. This is a real thing? <laughs> it was a real thing they thought. In like, but phlogiston is not real. It's not real. People so thought it was real. sounds like... Like if you were really super just torn up drunk. Man, I got flogislated <laughs> last night. <though. laughs> we finna flogislate. <laughs> but yeah, and so the biggest flaw of the phlogiston theory was that phlogiston was lighter than air, as they put it. So people basically thought phlogiston had a negative mass because things would be heavier after, like, if you have a piece of iron, right, and it rusts, it gets heavier because it's reacting with oxygen. So now you have iron and oxygen. So, like, it's heavier, right? Does that make sense? So, but if if the phlogiston theory is correct and phlogiston left the iron and that's why it rusted, the, then... Their theory would be, be less weight or, like, it would be lighter, right? No, because no. phlogiston had a... Basically, they were saying phlogiston had a negative mass. So when you had phlogiston, something would weigh less but than something would... But things can't have negative mass. Can they? I don't... Well, not, no normal matter has negative mass. Okay. I don't know. There might be some weird space mass that has negative mass. I don't know. That's a question for a physicist. I'm too dumb for that. Anything I, I deal with has mass. <laughs> <laughs> Most things have mass. Anything has mass. Okay. <laughs> Any tangible object has that you mass. Can touch or see or feel or yes. smell. Yes. Okay. Smell has mass. Yes. Okay. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. So. Yeah. So if you smell, um, that's going to be like a the fart, only for example, that I remember from this. <laughs> that, that the fart is in your nose. Those are little fart <laughs> molecules oh, in your yeah, nose. Yeah. Molecules. Yeah. <laughs> What's that thing that people are always saying about, like, the reason masks don't work is because you can smell your fart through them? But it's like, aren't the, aren't fart particles, like, scent particles smaller than virus particles? Yes. Okay. And that, that's the thing, like, a, a fart, and the that thing that smells in a fart fact. is very, very small. Yes. Um, viruses are bigger than a fart molecule would be. I can't believe I'm explaining <laughs> So you can't spread the virus through your fart, or could you? Well, so... You, like, if you farted <laughs> bare butt on an object, right, that's probably contaminated. But, like, if you were five foot away with pants on okay. and you fart, that's not going to spread a virus because your, your pants, pants would are the, the mask. Okay. The pants are the mask of the ass. Yes, I feel like that was that- a great explanation. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I hope I mean, other I people agree. Important. I think it's important to to repeat that. I know this isn't about the virus, but I think it's important to say that you know because that's a misconception that a lot of people have. Yeah, well, because and totally. too like so. <laughs> the other thing with masks, right? Like people say, oh well, I can't breathe in a mask. Oxygen doesn't go through the mask like it's supposed to. The mask, oxygen particles and fart particles are about the same size, right? So. If you could breathe oxygen through the mask, which you can, 
that's how the fart particles are getting through. But the viruses are bigger than both of those. So they're just Hmm. making all sorts of things up. Oh yeah, no, that was a whole thing. Because and like they were like, I mean, I'm gonna pass stupid, out I because I can't why. get enough oxygen. <laughs> and I it's think like, you're just claustrophobic. I think you're just having anxiety. I mean, that's possible. I mean, that's a valid thing because like I know a lot of people had to have these like little cages in their mask so that it sat away from their face because oh. like the mask touching their face. It's an autism problem, really. It's a sen- or, yeah. like a sensory issue. You know, if you have sensory issues, right? Um, the one like the fact that the mask like, touched their mouth. You're just a little mouth, sensitive. That's all. <laughs> It's yeah. okay. And that's fine. I also don't like, that's why I buy the masks that I buy to wear to work. Because they're like peaked and they get away from my face because mm-hmm. oh, I don't like yeah. things to touch my mouth. Exactly. Marie, we keep getting on side <laughs> tangents. Right, I'll stop talking. Because I do think there was something that, you said there was a feud here that remind me of a feud that's currently going on uh, on the internet. And I would like, that's that'll be my last tangent. I swear. I swear. I promise you. <laughs> I will stop. <laughs> See, this is what I mean. Like, I could just stop talking. I could do that. <laughs> I mean, I can unplug your mic if I can. <laughs> That'll stop. Amy, you can keep talking. Then. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I'll stop. I'll stop. We'll do, the just, we'll do the thing. I was just trying to joke along. <laughs> no, it's okay. I'm not that sensitive, I swear. Okay. <laughs> stop it! <laughs> See, I try to be quippy, and then people do this, and then I'm like, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Not me. I always say it, and I bite into it. I'm like, yeah, I'm glad I hurt your feeling. Hello, listeners. It is your editor of the Cowboy Chemistry Podcast. It's Selena. Uh, Just letting you guys know that we had to cut this one in half because it kind of ran super over. But don't worry. We'll be back next week with more tales about the icon herself, Marianne Pauls Lavoisier. Thank you guys so much for listening. Apoptosis going mad, my liver's gonna fail. Maybe it's from the radium I use to paint my nails. Well, say you hate me, carbon date me, throw me in the sea. I'll be back with time because I'm made of stardust and chemistry, of stardust and chemistry. chemistry.